If you would please turn in your Bibles this evening to Galatians chapter 5 as we're continuing our study through the Word of God and the book of Galatians over the last several weeks. And if you remember back in Galatians chapter 4, Paul spoke of two covenants. Hagar, the bondwoman, represented the law, and Sarah, the free woman, represented grace. And the law, as we saw, keeps you in bondage. And you can go down that path if you want, or you can receive the gift of grace that's in Christ Jesus, and he'll set you free. I mean, life in Christ is far better than bondage to the law, which can't save what the law does, it condemns. One writer put it like this in regards to what Paul is going to be sharing Here in Galatians chapter 5, he said, Paul begins his closing instruction to the Galatians, drawing the inevitable conclusion, true faith in Christ negates the bondage of the law. Do not seek to return to the bondage of the law. Instead, use your freedom to walk by the leading of the Holy Spirit. Again, it's an issue of Christian liberty, the liberty we have in Christ. But let me also say this. That liberty that we have in Christ does not give us the freedom to live in sin. Not at all. And we're going to talk about that as we look at these verses here this evening in Galatians chapter 5 because there are some that are teaching things that aren't correct, encouraging people to sin, that it's okay, it's all covered by the blood. And, you know, as we'll see, that's a poor attitude and that's a dangerous place to be. Now, last time Paul concluded Galatians chapter 4 by saying this. So then, brethren, we are not children of the bondwoman, but of the free. And that's going to lead us into what we're going to be talking about this evening. Look at Galatians chapter 5, starting in verse 1, where Paul said this. Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty by which Christ has made us free. And do not be entangled again with a yoke of bondage. So Paul is admonishing the Galatians to walk in the truth that he's been preaching, the freedom that we have in Christ. And again, Paul's not saying because of this liberty, you can just do whatever you want. You don't have to deny any impulses of the flesh. No, Paul is speaking of our freedom, our liberty from earning our way into heaven by good works, by the keeping of the law, which is impossible. The liberty we have from the guilt of sin, the power of sin upon our lives. We can walk in this liberty we have in Christ or... We could be in bondage to the law, which is like a yoke upon our lives that doesn't fit. You know, I I like what Luther said. He summed it up like this. He said, like oxen that toil in the yoke all day, and in the evening are turned out to graze along the dusty road, and at last are marked for slaughter when they can no longer draw the burden. So those who seek to be justified by the law are entangled with the yoke of bondage. And when they have grown old and broken down in the service of the law, they have earned for their perpetual reward, God's wrath, and everlasting torment. It's not a pretty picture that Luther is painting, but either is Paul. That's the reality. We're free in Christ or we are in bondage to the law. Look at verse 2 of Galatians 5. Indeed, I, Paul, say to you that if you become circumcised, Christ will profit you nothing. And I testify again to every man who becomes circumcised that he is a debtor to keep the whole law. And you have become estranged from Christ, you who attempt to be justified by law. You have fallen from grace. So, again, and we talked about this, these Judaizers Judaizers would come in after Paul taught about salvation by grace. And they were saying, yes, you need Jesus, but you also have to 
keep the law of Moses. And Paul says it's not an option. These two don't mix. If our righteousness, which the Bible says is like filthy rags before a holy and righteous God, why do we think we can enter the presence of God by our good works? I mean, our righteousness are the good things we do. We can't. We can't enter in by our own righteousness. Good works has never saved the person because man is not perfect, and thus his sins have separated him from God. And I love what God has done for us. Paul makes it very clear in 2 Corinthians 5.21. He said, For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. In other words, God took my sin, and what did he give me? His righteousness. So when the Father looks at me, how does he see me? He sees me as perfect. That's an amazing thing. I know I'm not perfect. You could ask my wife, I am not perfect. But God sees me as perfect because the blood of Christ has cleansed me from all my sins and he sees the finished product. He sees when I'll be taken into glory. He sees me as perfected. Yes, in these bodies of flesh, yeah, there's that sin that dwells in us and we'll talk about that, the works of the flesh. There's a spiritual battle going on. But the Father looks at the perfection, the finished work, that one day will be taken into glory. And I like that. You know, for the Jewish teachers, they counted out 613 commandments in the law of Moses. Now, you could try and keep them. It would be very difficult to remember everyone, let alone to keep them. But if you try to keep them, if you try to earn heaven or salvation by keeping the law, if you miss up on one, James tells us you're guilty of them all. You see, you can't pick and choose which ones you like and which ones you don't. There's that, you know, this sin is worse than this sin. Sin is sin before a holy and righteous God. And so it's impossible. And what the law does is it brings us to Jesus. You see, we fail. And we know we need a Savior. Think of it like this. You're driving and a police officer pulls you over for speeding. You broke the law. And he starts to write you out a ticket, and you tell him, but, but officer, please understand, I haven't robbed a bank. I haven't shot anyone. I'm, I'm a good person. And his reply would be, hey, you don't get credit for keeping the law. You get the penalty for breaking the law. You broke the law by speeding, and here is your ticket. You're guilty. That's the consequence. And if in God's economy, if you break one of his commandments, again, you're guilty of them all. That James 2.10, for whoever shall keep the whole law and yet stumble in one point, he is guilty of all. So it's impossible to do, and that's the point. We're not saved by the law through good works. We're saved by grace through faith. And when Paul talks about here being fallen from grace, he's not speaking, uh, he's not, speaking of not being able to mix law and grace together because they don't mix. You know, think about the unbeliever. He's probably heard of the gospel of grace that's found in Christ. Sometimes they have. But if he's approaching God through a works relationship, it's empty. For the believer who's received Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior and then has moved into a works relationship with God, I don't think he was ever really saved in the first place. If he truly believes that good works are going to save him, what he's saying is that Jesus was not enough, and now I have to help him out. That's serious. 
In Romans 3.20, Paul said, Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. I don't know how much clearer that could be. By the deeds of the law, no flesh shall, will be justified. Not just some, none. In fact, Boyce, I like the way Boyce kind of sums up this idea, you have fallen from grace. He says, the phrase does not mean that if a Christian sins, he falls from grace and thereby loses his salvation. There is a sense in which to sin is to fall into grace if one is repentant. But to fall from grace, as seen by this context, is to fall into legalism. Or to put it another way, to choose legalism is to relinquish grace as the principle by which one desires to be related to God. Now, Here's some of the things that I'm kind of seeing going on in the church today. And I kind of alluded to it a little earlier. Is that, hey, you know what? I don't worry about sin. It's all covered by the blood. I'm not perfected yet. In fact, one of the larger, larger churches in Manitowoc teaches this foolishness. I listened to their study on, on Galatians. They actually skipped Galatians chapter 5 because they didn't have enough time to go through that chapter, and they went right to chapter 6. I don't know how you could do that, but they did. But it's a growing teaching. If you're keeping the law for your salvation, forget about it. But don't you keep the law out of love for the Lord? Absolutely. Turn over to Romans chapter 6 for a second. Because Paul hits this pretty heavy. And I think it's important that we see what God's word has to say about this idea of it all being covered under the blood. Is it all covered by the blood? Absolutely it is. But if you're living with that mindset, something's wrong. Paul said in in Romans chapter 6, starting in verse 1, What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? There it is. Shall we? He says, certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in the newness of life. For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. For he who has died has been freed from sin. Now if we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. Likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body, that you should obey it in its lust. And do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. You know, there is a battle. Like I said, we're going to talk about this spiritual battle that's going on in our lives, this fight against sin, the fight against the flesh. And we are to fight against it. We are to resist sin. And think about it. 
Do we sin? Absolutely. But aren't you grieved over it? Doesn't the Holy Spirit convict you when you do? Absolutely he does. You know, John said in 1 John chapter 3, verses 4 through 6, whoever commits sin also commits lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. And you know that he was manifested to take away our sins, and in him there is no sin. Whoever abides in him does not sin. Whoever sins has neither seen him nor known him. Now, John is not, he's talking about habitual sin, continual sin, and no conviction of God upon their lives. Make no mistake, as I said before, we all sin. We all fall short. There's a battle going on, a spiritual war going on in our lives. But boy, if we just, you know, say, hey, I don't, it doesn't bother me anymore, there's a serious problem there. I think we need to listen to what God says about sin. That sin is repulsive to him, that he hates sin. And don't we want to have the mindset of of Christ? Do we hate sin? I can tell you, you know, when I watch the news, when I watch television shows, and I see some of the things that are put on there, it grieves my heart. When I see us flaunt sin like it is normal, and it's not. It's abnormal. We need to strive against sin. You know, Paul said in, in Hebrews, you know, you have not yet resisted to bloodshed. Fight that battle. Don't give in to it. But we'll talk about that in a little bit here. Look at verse 5 of Galatians chapter 5. For we through the Spirit eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness by faith. For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything, but faith working through love. I mean, Absolutely. For the guys, you guys should be saying amen. Remember what Paul said in verse 2? If you become circumcised, Christ will profit you nothing. Hey, don't worry about it, right? But for the Judaizers, they were coming in saying, hey, you need to get circumcised and you need to keep the law of Moses. And again here, you know, Paul's saying, look, it doesn't avail anything. It doesn't matter if you're circumcised or uncircumcised. Why? Because it's a matter of the heart. Not the flesh, the outward, but the inward. And as we walk in the Spirit, we wait with anticipation at what God by His Spirit is going to do in our lives. As He's, he's molding us, He's shaping us into the men and women that He wants us to be. Weist put it like this on what eagerly wait means. He wrote, The word speaks of an attitude of intense yearning and an eager waiting for something. Here it refers to the believer's intense desire for an eager expectation for a practical righteousness which will be constantly produced in his life by the Holy Spirit as he yields himself to him. There it is. Who are you yielding yourself to? The flesh or the spirit. And that's the battle, guys. Now, in a legalistic relationship with God... You're doing all the work. You're trying to enter in by your good works. But if your faith is in Christ, surrendered to the Holy Spirit, if you're walking in the grace of God, you are surrendering to the Spirit's guiding in your life. Look at verse 7. You ran well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion does not come from him who calls you. 
So these Galatians, when Paul was teaching them, started out well on this road with God. But then here came the Judaizers and hindered them or broke up the road that they were traveling on so it was difficult for them to continue on. And Paul says, hey man, don't think this legalistic relationship with God came from God. In reality, if it didn't come from God, then it's a doctrine of demons. It's leading people away from God. And think about it. If if your relationship with, with God was based on the things that you did or didn't do, one minute you might be doing great. The next minute you might be doing bad. Good, bad, good, bad, bad, bad. I don't know. Hey, you know what? For me, I am saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. And I can rest in that. And I want to yield my entire being to the Holy Spirit's guidance so I don't succumb to the flesh. Because until this body goes back to the dust of the earth, I've got to carry this flesh around with me. But one day, this flesh is going to be gone. God's got a new body for me, and I won't have to deal with the sin issue anymore. Same for you. Look at verse 9. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. How important is that? A little false doctrine will infiltrate a church, a community. It'll spread. This was illustrated for me uh, several years ago, actually. Wow, it's... A long time ago, back in 2004, January 19th, my dad died of cancer. He was diagnosed with colon cancer in April of 2003 and had his colon, part of his colon removed. And here's the thing. One little cancer cell can metastasize and travel throughout the body. And that's what happened with my dad. Within less than a year, the cancer spread to his brain, his lungs, his liver, and he died. And that's Paul's point. Like I said, you know, a single false doctrine can spread. It can multiply throughout a multitude of believers, and it can cause great destruction in their spiritual lives. I'm dealing with someone right now who is getting into legalism. You know, you can't have church on Sunday because that's worshiping, you know, the sun god. Well, uh, worshiping, you can have it on the Sabbath on Saturday, and you're worshiping Saturn the god of Saturn, right? You know, every day of the week was to a god, a false god, right? It's amazing how legalistic we can get. Can't we worship God every single day of the week? Absolutely. Why do we do it on Sunday? Because that's what the early church did. The early church met on the first day of the week, resurrection day. They gathered together. Can you meet on a Saturday? Absolutely. Can you meet on a Monday? Absolutely. Wednesday, Friday, any day. But you can become so legalistic. And it could be very destructive. Remember what happened in, in, what was it, Gatlinburg? This kid started that fire and there was a lot of dry, there was a drought in the area, heavy winds. And what happened? Fire caused destruction, destroyed many lives. And that's what false doctrine does. You know, it gets into an area and it's kind of dry and the wind's blowing and this this doctrine is flowing. Before long, look at all the people it takes out. And Paul wants them to understand, do not be misled. Bring everything back to the light of God's word. 
God did not call you into a legalistic relationship. He called you into a love relationship that is based upon his grace. Look at verse 10. I have confidence in you, in the Lord, that you will have no other mind, but he who troubles you shall bear his judgment, whoever he is. And I, brethren, if I still preach circumcision, why do I still suffer persecution? Then the offense of the cross has ceased. I could wish that those who trouble you would even cut themselves off. Wow, you know, Paul was a tough dude. He's telling them, look, I got confidence in you guys. I I truly believe God is going to open your eyes. You're going to see the air you're receiving. And the Lord who brought you into the life in the first place is going to sustain you. But be careful. Don't open these doors of false doctrine because they are dangerous. William Barclay tells the story of an old man who was terribly distraught. And when asked what was bothering him, he replied, When we were boys at play, one day at a crossroads, we reversed the signpost. And I've never ceased to wonder how many people were sent in the wrong direction by what we did. And that goes on in churches all the time. People spread false doctrine like it was candy, when in reality, it may be sugar-coated, but inside is deadly poison. And it's very serious, and we need to be aware. We need to pay attention. You know, Paul goes on to say in verse 11 here that if he still preached the necessity of circumcision for salvation as some were claiming he was doing, why was he still being persecuted by those who were the legalists? They shouldn't persecute him anymore. But obviously he wasn't doing that. Paul wasn't under the bondage of the law. He was under the liberty that's found in Christ through faith and love. Well, verse 12 is a tough one. And in our English Bibles, we kind of lose the thrust of what Paul's saying. That phrase, they were cut off, uh, literally means to mutilate. Well, what's Paul's point? Well, Paul was so passionately opposed to what these Judaizers were teaching that he wished that they would mutilate themselves by castration. He didn't know how to win friends and influence people. I guess he didn't take that course. He just laid it out there. And and some feel that he, he was relating to the cult of Sibeli, which was a popular nature goddess in Asia Minor during Paul's day, and many of the male worshipers to show their devotion to this goddess, they would castrate themselves, make themselves eunuchs. One writer said, if the Judaizers are so insistent on circumcision as a means of pleasing God, why don't they go all the way and castrate themselves as the supreme act of religious devotion? If, like the pagans, they believe human achievement can earn divine favor, why don't they go to the pagan extremes of self-mutilation, like the Sibelian priest? You see, that's the problem. When you start adding any human works, human effort to God's grace, you end up exchanging the saving work of Christ on the cross of Calvary, that free gift of life that's only found in him. And, and, you know, the many religions and really all religions, Christianity is not a religion, it's a relationship. But all religions, you got to work your way to heaven or nirvana or to whatever they believe in. you got to do this, don't do that. And no one's ever been able to tell me how much do I have to do to get in. Have, they ever, have you ever found that out? How much good work do you have to do? Nobody knows. 
I'll tell you a little secret. The work has already been done by Jesus Christ. He paid in full the penalty for my sins. And all I need to do is to receive that gift by faith. You see the difference? I know I'm going to heaven, not because I'm such a good person. I'm a bad person. That's why Jesus died for my sins. I'm going to heaven because of what Jesus Christ has done in my life. Period. When I get to heaven, there is not going to be boasting by me or anyone else. I think we'll all be on our knees with our faces to the ground saying, Lord, thank you for saving a sinner like me. Look at verse 13. For you, brethren, have been called to liberty. Only do not use liberty as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For all the laws fulfilled in one word, even in this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, beware lest you be consumed by one another. So our liberty in Christ is to be used in love, the practical application. For these legalists who were concerned about Christian liberty being used to justify sin, letting the flesh nature rise up, they weren't to use their liberty, Paul says, the liberty that we have in Christ as a base of operation to sin. Not at all. That old life, that flesh nature, was crucified with Christ. And yet, it does try to resurrect itself in our lives. And that's why we need to surrender to the Spirit's leading. We're not perfect, absolutely, but don't use that as an excuse. Also, we need to be careful that we don't devour each other as Christians. Getting into our little groups, you know, dividing up. We're to love each other. It's the body of Christ. I mean, you may not like this, but we're going to be with each other for eternity. Get used to it. And, you know, let's face it, we are from a dysfunctional family. We're part of the Adams family, and, you know, we're crazy and we're kooky, and you know this, how the song goes. Isn't that true? But we're family. And we all have different roles to play in the body of Christ. And we all look differently, dress differently. Our hair is long, short, different colors. Who cares? We have one thing in common, and that's Jesus Christ. And I guarantee you, when we get to heaven and we stand before the Lord, no one's going to say, you know, Lord, so-and-so, he had some pretty long hair. What do you think about that? So if you're not going to do that in heaven where Jesus has the right answer, don't mess around with it here. Hey, praise God, if you get long hair, I'm too lazy for long hair. I used to have long hair when I was younger. I guess I had more time, I don't know. But my hair would be, and I had to use the blow dryer to keep it slicked back, you know. Forget it. I get up in the morning, and if it's really bad, I just put a hat on my head, and I'm off. We're the body of Christ. We have the mind of Christ. Let's look out for the interest of others. Don't esteem yourself as being more important. Love each other. And you know what? As I look at the world, that's something that the world is missing. 
And when they look at our lives, when they come into a church setting, they should see the love of Christ between the brethren and for all the new people that come in. They should see something vastly different that, man, I went to that church and those people were crazy. They were talking to me. They liked me. It's like I was family. Absolutely. We're the body of Christ. Now, does that mean we don't judge each other? Absolutely not. If there's, if there's air false doctrine, of course we got to confront those issues. But be careful because sometimes our own personal convictions can become a law. Thou shalt not have a TV in your home. Here's the thing. If God says you are not to have a TV in your home, praise God, don't get it. Because if you do, you're wrong. But now what you're doing is you're making it into a law. And you're saying nobody can have a TV in their home. That's wrong. So we got to be careful with, with that. Um, we judge false doctrine, absolutely. But personal convictions, those are personal convictions. Be careful with that. Love them as Christ loves us. Well, look at verse 16 here in Galatians 5. I say then, Walk in the spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. For the flesh lusts against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary to one another, so that you do not do the things that you wish. But if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. And Paul is commanding believers to continually walk in the spirit, not just when they feel like it. He uses a Greek word that's in the present tense, and it speaks of a continuous action, a habitual way of life, surrendering to the Holy Spirit. How does the Holy Spirit influence our lives? Well, through the Word of God, the Bible. You read the Word of God. It tells you, you know, what's right. It tells you what's wrong. It tells you how to get right when you've gone astray. It tells you how to stay down that right path. He also uses others to minister to us. You know, I've talked with others before and, you know, someone was at, you know, they were at work and they kind of blew up at, at another coworker or a boss and an unbeliever called them on it. Yeah, God used the unbeliever to show them their error. He also speaks to our hearts as we're sensitive to his leading, his guiding. And again, that's a hard one sometimes. But we need to be open to what the Holy Spirit is showing us. And the, as we walk in the Spirit, we become more like Jesus. And here's the thing. Paul said, walk in the Spirit and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. And God, oh, how many of us succeeded with that one? None of us have. Why? Because there's a battle going on here. There's a war going on here. But if we could do that, Wow. But wow, what a fight. You know, our will and the Lord's will for our lives. Think about our bodies as having two hard drives. One that's programmed according to the flesh nature and one according to the spirit. Max is probably real proud of me using computer language here, but hard drives is about, you know, as computer literate as I am. But you have to choose which drive you're going to use. Which one? Each are going to work, but the outcome is going to be completely different. You could live off the flesh drive, but you can't make the flesh drive work better. It's just going to do what it normally does, and it's not pretty, as we're going to see in a minute. 
God wants you to walk, work off the spirit drive. And you, as you use the spirit drive, you know what? It makes the flesh better. In that we're not fulfilling the works of the flesh. We see the fruit of the spirit produced in our lives. And one day, when we receive our new bodies, we get an upgrade. Huge computer upgrade of resurrection proportions. No more sin. Long for that day. I don't know how many of you have read Pilgrim's Progress before, but in Pilgrim's Progress, John Bunyan describes Interpreter's House, which Pilgrim entered during the course of his journey to the celestial city. And the parlor of the house was completely covered with dust, and when a man took a broom and started to sweep, he and the others in the room began to choke from the great clouds of dust that were stirred up. And the more vigorously he swept, the more suffocating the dust became. Then interpreter ordered a maid to sprinkle the room with water, with which the dust was quickly washed away. An interpreter explained to Pilgrim that the parlor represented the heart of an unsaved man, that the dust was original sin, the man with the broom was the law, and the maid was, with the water was the gospel. His point was that all the law can do with sin is to stir it up. Only the gospel of Jesus Christ can wash it away. The power of sin is the law, Paul declares, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Yeah. Who are you going to surrender to, guys? You know, it's a battle of the wills. The will of God for our lives and the will of man, our own will. What we desire to do. Oswald Chambers wrote, Surrender is not the surrender of the external life, but of the will. When that is done, all is done. There are very few crises in life. The great crisis is the surrender of the will. And I think that is Paul's point here. Walk in the Spirit, surrender to him, and you shall not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. That's what we should long after. Another writer said, you don't want to surrender to God's control? You won't bow to his will in relation to your marriage, your morals, your attitudes, your tongue, your eating habits, your spending habits, or the way you spend time. Then count on it. The very points on which you refuse to surrender will become enemies that rule over you. Lust, greed, possessions, food, sloth, immorality, anger, etc. Think about it. You know, when people come to me for marriage counseling, there's problems within the marriage. But they're not looking to surrender to God's will. What they want to do is me to wave a magic wand and for their marriage to be better. No, it's called surrender. Surrender to God's will. But they're doing this and she's doing that and he's doing that. Sorry, I can't help you. You surrender to God's will. You see the battle that's going on? And it's hard. And if you're not led by the Spirit, then the fruit of the Spirit is not going to flow from your life. It'll be the works of the flesh. Surrender is hard. When I was growing up, I didn't hit five feet until I was a sophomore in, in high school. I didn't even hit 100 pounds until I was a sophomore in high school. I was a little guy. But, you know, and I had a, there was a guy I knew who was a lot bigger than me. And I don't know what happened. I don't even remember why we were fighting. 
But we started fighting. And I was getting ready to swing, and this guy was big. And I wish he would have hit me and knocked me out. But instead, what he did was he put his hand out on my forehead, and I'm swinging, and I can't even hit him. I refused to surrender. I was going at him as long as I could. I finally did give up, but boy, you have to humble yourself. Exactly, don't you? Don't you have to humble yourself before God? Uh, yeah. There's a, a story in the 1924 Paris Olympics. A 22-year-old Scottish athlete made headlines when he determined to say no to self and yes to God. Eric Liddell made a decision that he would have been, that would have been unthinkable for most, to drop out of his best event, the 100-yard dash, because the qualifying heats were being held on Sunday. While his competitors were participating in the heats, Liddell was preaching a sermon at a nearby church. Wow. Subsequently, Liddell entered himself in the 400-yard dash, a race for which he didn't even train for. And he ran the race, finishing five yards ahead of the nearest competitor, and he set a new world record. However, that Olympic gold medal, earned under such extraordinary circumstances, was far from his greatest accomplishment. Here's this Olympic athlete. His obedience to God in Paris was just one of those lifelong series of surrenders that earned him the applause of heaven. After his Olympic triumph, he returned to China, where he had been raised to serve as a missionary. In 1943, he was interned in a, a Japanese concentration camp in China, where he continued to serve God and joyfully ministered to his fellow prisoners. While still in the camp, he suffered a brain tumor that ravaged his body and left him partially paralyzed. Think about this. Here's a man who could have been very angry. God, I'm serving you, even in this prison camp. And now this? But no. On February 21st, 1945, Eric lay on a hospital bed, struggling to breathe and moving in and out of consciousness. Finally, he went into a convulsion. The nurse who had been by his side took him into her arms as he managed to breathe his final words. Annie, he said, his voice barely audible, it's complete surrender. And he slipped into a coma and then into eternity. Wow. He met the one in person that he was willing to die for, gave his life for, surrendered his life for. It's complete surrender. That was his life. That's what he lived. That's, it was his last breath. Complete surrender. You know, may we be able to take a blank sheet of paper, sign it and give it to the Lord and said, Lord, you fill it in. You know what you have for my life. You know what's best for me. You fill it in. Because I have a lot of ideas. I have a lot of plans. But Lord, I want your will to be done in my life. I want to be more like you. That's what we need to do. Humbling ourselves before the Lord. Getting that vertical axis in line so his will becomes our will. And then we can walk in the Spirit and will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Because if we are led by the Spirit, we're not under the law. A battle of those wills. And we need to let God rule in our lives. And if we get that vertical axis in line, then the horizontal axis, our relationship with those around us, will also be in line. You know, James said, humble yourself in the sight of the Lord and he will lift you up. 
Another translation puts it like this. When you bow down before the Lord and admit your dependence on him, he will lift you up and give you honor. Yeah, you know, when we refuse to surrender to him, we're depending on ourselves. But when we admit our dependence on him, Lord, I can't do it. I've tried long enough. I'm giving it to you, Lord. You guide me. You lead me. Well, as we continue on here, Paul is going to talk about these works of the flesh, which obviously are not pretty, or nor are they intended to be. Look at verse 19. Now the works of the flesh are evident, which are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, licentiousness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like, of which I tell you beforehand, just as I also told you in the time past, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. So Paul kind of groups these things, these works of the flesh, into four categories. You know, sensual sins, religious sins, interpersonal sins, and social sins. And it's not an all-inclusive list, but it does cover a broad spectrum of fleshly sins that are works of the flesh. The sensual sins, adultery, it, it speaks of a violation of the marriage covenant by sexual immorality. Fornication comes from the Greek word pornea, and it speaks of sexual immorality in the broad sense. Sex before and outside of marriage is the idea. Uncleanness is more of a general sexual uncleanness, the opposite of of purity. Lewdness speaks of a person who flaunts their immorality, and we see a lot of that today. Then there's the religious sins of idolatry, and it's the worship of any god except the true and living god. Sorcery comes from the Greek word pharmakia. We get our English word pharmacy from, and it speaks of witchcraft and the use of drugs, especially uh, hallucinogenics that open up the door of the spirit world. We've got the interpersonal sins of hatred. That's for outward actions, contentions, being combative or argumentative, jealousies to have what others have that's not ours, outbursts of wrath, losing control, selfish ambitions. It's done for power or profit. It's done for you. Dissensions carry with it the idea of just flying apart, dividing. Heresies deal with dividing over our opinions. Envy carries with it the idea of being bitter because someone else has what we want. And murders speak for itself. And the social sins of drunkenness, Alcohol impairing your judgment, revelries, unrestrained partying, no, no control. And then Paul says, and the like. So if there's still something out there that's not mentioned, that's not of God, it's still wrong. It's a work of the flesh. And it's just not our actions. It's our, our thinking that we battle. It's a fight. Paul and Romans 8 said, For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be. So then those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Again, it's a battle 
Are you going to surrender to the will of God, or is it going to be your will that you want done? And, and the bottom line is, if these things are your life, habitually speaking, Paul says you're not going to inherit the kingdom of God. That's pretty serious. It's not that works save us, not at all. But they're evidence of who's controlling your life. Who's on the throne of your heart? It's a battle of the wills. In fact, Boyce put it this way, the tense of the verb present indicates a habitual continuation in the fleshly sins rather than an isolated lapse. And the point is that those who continually practice such sins give evidence of having never received God's spirit. And I think that's Paul's point here. And I think, you know, we need to be aware of that in our lives. And I'm not trying to put you under the law or legalistic or anything like that. But boy, if we, we are just sinning and it's not bothering us, something's wrong. We need to do a heart check. Lord, what's going on? What's the matter? Why am I so comfortable living in sin? I shouldn't be. Well, Praise God we're not ending on the works of the flesh, huh? We're going to end with the fruit of the Spirit. Look at verse 22. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. Notice that works is in the plural, okay? Fruit is in the singular. It's the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit, I personally believe, is love. And out of that love, that agape love, that unconditional love, are eight characteristics, eight attributes that are manifested in our lives. You know, we have that joy, peace, the long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. That's all born out of that agape love. And and joy, let's face it, our joy needs to be based in God. Because when our joy is based in God, can God ever be taken away from us? No. Well, that means my joy can never be taken away. Well, why am I not filled with joy? Because you're not looking at the right person and the right things. When my eyes are focused upon him, there's tremendous joy. When I look at what's going on around all over the place here, what's happening in my life, that joy is gone. I need to get refocused. I need to get, pay attention to the Lord. The same with peace, the peace of God, our pe- peace with our fellow man, peace through the storms of life. It's not a freedom from trouble, but a peace through the st- things we go through. But we, you know, we first have to make peace with God, and then the peace of God will fill our lives. Long-suffering is just tolerance. And you know, for me... That's a hard one, to be long-suffering. You know, and, and God is working on me in that area, but it's tough. Kindness, just having a tender heart, goodness, generosity, faithfulness, being trustworthy, gentleness, self-control. You see, the law can't manifest these qualities in us. The Holy Spirit can And if we try to manifest these characteristics in our lives, it's fake fruit. 
and it won't last. Or it's rotten fruit, and it's going to stink. But when the Holy Spirit is producing the fruit, this fruit in our lives, it's real, and it's lasting. And I like that. But you have to submit to the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 24. And those who are Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. In other words, Paul's saying, don't entertain the flesh, don't feed the flesh, don't play with the flesh. What do we do with the flesh? Crucify it. With the, its passions and desires to control your life. You have to take action. You have to be willing to give it to the Lord. What are you feeding in your life? The flesh or the spirit? And I'm not taking, talking about taking in physical food. But what are you feeding? What kind of things are you bringing into your life? Are you feeding your spirit the things of God? Are you bringing into your life? Are you bringing worldly things into your life? Because whatever you feed, that is what is going to be manifested in your life. Are you in the word of God? Are you in prayer? Are you in fellowship with other brothers and sisters in the Lord? Are you serving God? You see, those are important. But if you feed yourself with the worldly things, that's what's going to flow from your life. Paul says, walk in the spirit. Keep in step with the spirit. You know, when my kids were young, they used to, you know, I'd be walking and my shadow would be behind me sometimes. And what my kids do, they would try to follow my shadow, walk behind me, keep in step with me. And that's what Paul's saying here. Keep in step with the Spirit. Be in tune to the Spirit's leading, his guiding. Follow him. Walk with him. It should be the practice of our life. And then he concludes this section with a warning not to be conceited in our walk, but yield to the Holy Spirit and allow the fruit of the Spirit to flow from your life. Now, turn over to Ephesians for one second here. Say, work on bringing this to a close this evening. But listen what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 5. We're going to pick up in verse 13. And listen to what he says. See then that you walk circumspectly. Walk carefully, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not be drunk with wine, in which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for all things to God the Father, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another in the fear of God. Do you see that? We need to wake up. We need to walk circumspectly. Why? Paul says the days are evil. Have you noticed that when you turn on the TV, when you read the newspaper, when you're listening to the radio, that the days are pretty evil? They are. So Paul's saying, pay attention to where you're walking. Don't just daydream. We're in a spiritual battle here. There's a spiritual war. And, and I realize that, you know, people don't like to talk about that. But I'll tell you what, Paul in, in Ephesians chapter 6, he talks about spiritual battles. He talks about that we're not wrestling against 
flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers, against the rulers of darkness, against the spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. He says, take up the whole armor of God so you could stand. There's a spiritual battle going on. And I'll tell you what, there is a tremendous spiritual battle going on in this nation right now. In fact, I'm working on a series that will be starting in a few weeks here called Civil War, and it's out of Ephesians. We're getting to Ephesians 6 with the spiritual warfare. A civil war with our government, where our government is working on transforming us into really a one-world government. One world. How do you do that? Well, they're called progressives today, but the reality is, you know what a progressive is? A socialist. So that's what we're moving towards. But there's a problem. It's called the family. There's the second civil war. The first one was with the government. The next one's with the family. And you know why the family is so important in a nation? Because they train up their children. So now we need to divide the family. We need to destroy the family. We need to not even realize what a family is anymore. Have we done that? Yeah, we don't even know what bathrooms to use anymore. And the last civil war, guys, is with the church. The church helps us to walk. If, if the government is the body of the nation, holds us together, if the family is the soul of the nation, the consciousness of the nation, the church is the spirit of the nation, and it gives us life. And look at how our nation got started. By Christian men. Not perfect men. They are far from perfect. None of us are. But you destroy the church. How do you do that? Take a look at what's going on in the church today. All the garbage. This is a spiritual battle that we're facing. And who are we going to surrender to? We need to walk circumspectly. We need to surrender to the Holy Spirit's guiding in our lives. We need to redeem the time. What does that mean? How long do you have to live? I don't know. But I'm going to use it to the fullest until the Lord calls me home or we all go up together in the rapture, right? One way or another, we're going home. Don't be unwise. Understand what the will of God is for your life. And just may that fruit of the Spirit flow, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns, spiritual songs, the joy of the Lord. And here's the key. Submitting to one another in the fear of God. It is. Filled with the Spirit, submitting. Let the fruit of the Spirit flow from our lives. And as we do, as we let that agape love flow from us, it will be manifested in many different ways to those around us. This is not a legalistic relationship with God. It is a love relationship with God. And I'm so thankful for that that I don't have to do this and not do that and have to worry that I blow it today. The Holy Spirit will show me what I did wrong. The Holy Spirit will guide me and convict me. But I know my faith is secure in Christ. It's not based on my good works. It's based on his finished work. And so I could rejoice in that. I can just be joyful. If you ever seen people that are into the law, they're not very happy. And I think they're not happy because they look at me. They look at you, 
They see you. Man, you're having a great time. You shouldn't be having fun. The Lord never said we shouldn't be having fun. There's tremendous joy in serving the Lord. Let's rejoice. Let people see what Christ has done in our lives, that they may desire to have what we have. That's Jesus. Let's pray. Father, again, we thank you for your word this evening, Lord, and just the encouragement you've given us, and just the, just telling us, Lord, walk in the Spirit. Walk in the Spirit. Surrender to the Spirit's leading. Let the fruit of the Spirit not only flow from our lives, but, Lord, may, may so many people see that love that we have for you, that they would be drawn to you through it, Lord. Help us. We want to be more like you. And we realize, Lord, we're so far from that. But, Lord, you never give up on us. Your word says that you will complete the work that you have begun in us. And I'm so thankful that you will, Lord. You don't give up. You never give up. And one day we'll be with you in glory. And we thank you for that. Guide us this evening, Lord, in all that we do. And prepare us for tomorrow. In Jesus' name, amen.